celebratory moment of that camp thing. Um, guys, we are able to send um, junior high and high school students to camp for $99. Yeah, absolutely. So um, here is our hope for you guys. Yes, we need people to come help lead. It will be the craziest week of your life. No doubt. I'm not going to try to downplay that. But it will also be one of the most rewarding weeks of your life. Also, if you know a high school or junior high student, whether it's your kid or it's your friend's kid or, or you are a student, um, get to this camp. It will be the best week of your summer. Try to rearrange family vacations if you can, rearrange sports schedules if you can, make it to this camp, get there. Um, we have never been able to have an opportunity like this before and we don't want anyone to miss it. Um, we are encouraging our students to invite their sports teams, their friends from school, anyone who's not connected to a church community. This is a great way to get connected. Um, so yeah, keep that in mind. Um, but today, it's, it's my honor to, uh, to get to talk to you about something else. Uh, if you guys have, have been coming for the last several weeks, you know that we've been in a series called Reset. Uh, and throughout this series, we've, we've been talking about how uh, none of us were designed to keep on going and going and going and going. None of us were designed like the Energizer Bunny, right? We, were all, we have this inherent uh, trait that we burn out. We need rest, we need, we need pause, we need a reset. And so we've been talking uh, about how God gives us that reset, how he gives us that rest, how he gives us time to pause and start again. And so we've adopted this verse out of Leviticus chapter 25 to kind of sum up um, this idea of resetting. Um, and it says this, it says, Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Right? And so Jubilee was the means through which God gave his people in the Old Testament the reset that they needed. It came about every 50 years. And on that 50th year, uh, people would take two years off of work to just rest and to be together. Uh, slaves would be set free during that 50th year. Debts were canceled during that 50th year. And then several hundred years later, Jesus shows up on the scene and, uh, and he kind of kicks off his public ministry. He kicks off his time here on earth by making a proclamation in Luke chapter 4. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the year of the Lord's favor, it's another name for Jubilee. But basically what Jesus is saying is, look, this is no longer just for, for God's people, for the Israelites. And it's no longer every 50 years. This, this reset, this Jubilee is now for everyone all the time through me. And so that is what we have been talking about over the course of the last few weeks, different elements. Last week, if you were here, you might remember Jeff talking about the idea of atonement and how we all kind of have this built-in desire to see the things in our lives resolved, to see them made right, to see them balanced out. And so Jeff talked about how, how God did that through his son, Jesus. Uh, but what we're going to look at this week is how when we look at God's story in the Bible and how we look at our own stories through our lives, there seems to be kind of a disparity. God has his way of, of making things right, um, but we kind of have our own built-in way of trying to make things right. So we're going to look at the difference between those and how we might find some alignment. But before we get there, um, bow your heads with me and uh, let's talk to God. Jesus, um, thank you for today. For Sunday, God, for a Sabbath day, a day that you set aside for us to just step back out of the craziness of our schedules, to just be with each other and to be with you, to find rest, to find reset, to kind of refocus away from all the other priorities that the world puts in our face 
and to just recenter on you. God, as we do, we, um, we just take a moment to be silent, to, to prepare ourselves to hear what you have to say to us this morning, God. So as we, as we sit silently, speak to us, God. We love you. Thank you. Amen. Okay, so like we have been talking about, the, the idea of God's reset for us is best understood in this kind of context of Jubilee, in this year of the Lord's favor. And, and if, you've, if you've spent any time reading it, or maybe you've picked up on the theme throughout this, this series, this conversation, uh, God talks a lot about the idea of, of canceling debts, right? Uh, we can kind of get a picture for it in, in chapter uh, 25 of Leviticus, verse 28, it says, but if they do not acquire the means to repay, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee. So what's going on here? Kind of confusing. We're jumping in the middle of the context. But this is God giving his people instructions on how to celebrate Jubilee. And, and what he's saying is, look, over these 50 years, I know that many of you, um, whether it's due to bad decisions or misfortune, you've gotten into a place where you've sold off your belongings to, to pay off debts. Some people, it had even gotten so bad that they had sell, sold themselves into a sort of slavery. It was called an indentured servant. And so they had sold themselves into a kind of slavery to work off their debt. And so what God is saying is part of this jubilee, this 50th year, is that all of these things, if you hadn't been able to, to work it off, work off your debt or repay the debt, then on that 50th year... Debt was canceled. It was forgotten. You were set free. And that's awesome. We, as a church community, we understand the value of being a debtor, someone who owes something, and someone coming up to us and saying, look, you don't owe that anymore. We get how powerful and transformative that can be. A lot of us in here are homeowners, but even if you're not, just imagine you, you've bought a home. And you've been, you've been paying your mortgage payment on that home. And you felt the weight of that payment. You've, you felt the pain of, of sacrificing other things, vacations or, or entertainment, things that you've had to give up because you have to keep making that payment on that house. And then imagine after, after feeling that burden, that weight, that pain for several years, imagine the bank shows up and knocks on your door and says, hey, um, we, we want to let you keep the house, but we're, we're going to cancel your debt. You don't have a mortgage anymore. Think about, think about the freedom, the lightness, the joy that you would have with that kind of news, right? We as humans, we totally get and understand how incredible the, an economy where debts are canceled is. We get that freedom. But here's where we kind of miss it. As easy as it is to understand the beauty of a canceled debt as a debtor, it's harder to see the beauty as the lender. It's harder when the debt is owed to us to see the beauty of a canceled debt. You see, because as, as humans, we have our own natural way of wanting to make things right. We kind of want to see tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We want, we want good to be repaid with good and evil to be repaid with evil. Our, our ideal of making things right is, is kind of this balancing act. Right? And, and we don't have to look far, especially on Memorial Day, to see this played out. 
Our, our human history has been marred by wars uh, that people have given their lives for. Even today, we see it uh, playing out in Baltimore and, and Ferguson, and we see it playing out through ISIS and all over the world. We see people who are crying out saying, I've been hurt, and now I'm going to hurt back to make it even, to make it fair, to balance it out. But we don't just see it on the large scale, the global scale. We also see it in our own personal lives, right? We also, we've, we know that we've, we've been hurt and, and that people owe us an emotional debt. I, uh, a couple weeks ago, you guys know I'm the high school pastor. We meet here at the church Thursday nights. That's where we do our main, our main high school gathering. We also sit in here during the 11 o'clock service. But Thursday night, that's our main night. And we get together and we have a lot of fun and we, we do a message and we break into small groups. And it's, it's super great. And then every, most every week, um, a lot of us will kind of migrate over to Chick-fil-A across the freeway. Uh, and leaders and students, we just kind of hang out there, do life, make memories, tell stories, eat together. Uh, it's, just, it's just a fun expression, an organic expression of the church. Uh, but a couple weeks ago, we were at, uh, we were at Chick-fil-A, and uh, they had closed. We always get there right before they close, so we eat real fast, and then we kind of move it outside and hang out out there. Uh, so we were outside, and uh, I got to overhear and kind of participate in this conversation um, between some of the students. Uh, and the students were, um, they were talking about their list, as they referred to it. Uh, and and it, was, it was interesting to me because they didn't have to define for each other what they were meaning when they were saying their list. They both kind of had this common understanding of what they were referring to. But they said, you know, one student would say, I've got three people on my list. And another would say, I, you know, I've got, yeah, probably four or five people on my list. And they proceeded to talk about exes. And they proceeded to talk about friends who had betrayed them. Uh, we had one student specifically who talked about... Um, the birth mom of her foster siblings and the anger she had in her heart towards um, that person because of the pain she had seen them cause. And it was interesting for me to kind of observe this conversation going because the students involved had this, had this common language, the list, as they referred to it, of the people who owed them or owed people they love an emotional debt and how, they, how they're keeping track of that. And I kind of, I reflected on, on my own story, and it was interesting, because I thought, a couple years ago, I don't know that I could have told you I had a list. Uh, a couple years ago, I probably would have thought, I, I'm really good at letting things go and forgiving people. And then um, God kind of shined a mirror on me uh, about a year ago or so. Um, I went to a concert with my wife. Um, great concert. And after the concert was over, we were kind of just hanging out, and we ran into one of my friends um, from junior high. And to give you guys uh, just some context, um, all of you, I think most of us have been through junior high, uh, we all know how awkward junior high is, right? Everything from our body odor to our voice to our thoughts, I mean, everything just gets real weird during those years. Uh, We're not sure what to do or say or how to interact with people, Um, we're just... Awkward human beings in junior high. Uh, and so for me, I definitely lived up to that. And one of the, the most bummer things for me in junior high um, was I had the, the fun joy of experiencing acne. Right? And so uh, my acne was, was worse than a, a lot of people's. Um, I describe it most often to people as it looked like I had been stung by a swarm of bees on my face and that I was allergic to bees. So, like, my, it, was, it was terrible, guys. My mom actually, like, she's hidden most pictures from that phase, um, from all the photo albums, so that I don't have to relive that. But, but luckily for me, uh, I went to a, a small private school, and uh, 
prior to becoming an awkward teenager, I, I had kind of fallen into the in crowd, and so that reputation kind of stuck with me, and so I was kind of protected for, from some of the cruelness um, that other students might have to experience. But there was one weekend, there was a weekend I went uh, with my church at the time to, uh, to a Mexico missions trip, right? And so we went down hundreds of junior high students and leaders. We went down to build homes and to do VBS for the kids down there. Uh, and it was, it was an incredible week, but I remember um, the nights we tent camped. We had a giant lot and we all had kind of individual tents where you'd have like three or four students in a tent. And so one morning uh, we, we wake up and I kind of get ready, get dressed and make my way out of my tent over to the common breakfast area. Kind of everyone's kind of converging at the same time because it was breakfast time. And so as we converged, uh, I, I was coming across this, this friend of mine. And we weren't best friends by any, any means. Um, he was a pastor's kid. And so everyone, everyone knew who he was. Everyone liked him. He was really popular within the church community. Everyone wanted to be his friend. And, and we had a, enough mutual friends uh, that, and when we had enough in common that we, I, would, I would say we were friends. And so we were, we were converging towards breakfast. And he looks at me, and we make eye contact, and he smiles. And so I, I smile in return. And he says, good morning, Jordan. And before I can respond back with good morning, he says, your acne sure is smiling today. And to be honest, I'm not even sure what that meant. Um, but it hurt. I can tell you that it hurt. The fact that he was pointing it out amongst all of my, our peers, all of our friends, as we were making our way to breakfast, I was crushed. And to be honest, I, I can't even remember how I responded. I'm pretty sure it had something to do with retreating back to my tent to kind of get myself back together before I went back into public. Um, but it was, it was incredibly devastating to hear that. And like, like all of us try to be, but especially during our teenage years, I was pretty resilient. I, I feel like I moved on pretty quickly from that comment. I don't know that we were ever, like, friends after that, but, you know, it wasn't like I, like, knocked him out or anything. Like, we, we coexisted. I felt like I had I'd moved past, moved on. And so fast forward to about a year ago at this concert, we run into this, this old friend uh, at this concert. So after, after the show's over, we're catching up, and hey, how have you been, and we're both being very friendly, and, but inside, I'm really realizing all these old feelings of bitterness and anger and resentment starting to boil. And at the same time, I realize that, um, thanks to medicine, I'm, my complexion has, has recovered, but now he kind of, his complexion's not so awesome. <laughs> so inside, I'm like, God is good! <laughs> Justice has been served, right? Because in my heart, that was what I needed for the debt to be repaid. I needed for it to be made even, and now it was. And as I walked out, the, that, that satisfaction, that joy, was short-lived. Because I was like, really, Jordan? You're taking joy in that he has to suffer from that now? Wait, come on. Right? And so, so God kind of shined this mirror on me. But, but I was realizing, as I was hearing these students talk about their lists... But I'm not alone in that. It's, it's our human nature, it's our default state to, to when we want things to be made right, it means that they're made even. It means that good is repaid with good and evil with evil. It means that justice has been served. But God's way is a little bit different. You guys have your Bible. Turn with me to uh, Matthew 18. If you have an app, you can, you can use that too, or, uh, or your outline that came in your bulletin, or the verses will also be up on the screen. 
But we're going to be, we're going to be spending our time today in Matthew 18. Uh, we're going to start in verse 21. And it says this. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And I love this. I love this. Jesus, um, sorry, Peter. Peter's one of Jesus' like, closest disciples, his apprentice. They're like, they're homies. And uh, you can just tell here, like, Peter's clearly the goody-goody of the group because he's just trying to earn that gold star from Jesus. Uh, in, their, in their time, um, the rabbis, the Jewish teachers had this standard. The rabbinical standard for forgiveness was three times. So that meant if someone hurt you, you forgave them. They did it again, you forgave them a second time. They, they offend you again, forgive them one more time. If they do anything else, you can just hate their guts for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> totally okay in the eyes of the rabbis. So Peter, trying to be so magnanimous, he's like, Jesus, I'm going to forgive someone seven times, right? He doubles the three, the standard, and he adds one to then arrive at seven, which is kind of the Jewish number of perfection or completion. And he's like, come on, Jesus, pat me on the back. And Jesus, not so impressed, responds in verse 22, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. You might be more familiar with other translations. Sometimes it's translated as 70 times 7. But either way, it doesn't matter because the point is Jesus isn't trying to communicate a specific number to Peter. What Jesus is saying is, look, if someone hurts you, you forgive them each and every time that they need forgiveness. You don't count. You don't keep track. You continue to offer that forgiveness. And then, as, as Jesus often does, he, he begins to tell a story. To help, Jesus, to help Peter and the rest of the audience, including us, understand the idea of forgiveness a little bit better. In verse 23, he begins, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay So this king, this master, he, uh, like any decent business owner, he has his books, his accounting books, his ledger. He's got, he's keeping tracks of everything that he owes to other people and everything that other people owe to him. And so he's, he's reviewing his books. He's looking to balance everything out to make everything, you know, even out to zero. And as he's looking, he comes across um, the servant, the servant who owes him 10,000 bags of gold. So as the, as he does that, uh, just context for you guys. For our American 21st century years, we, we don't really understand the concept of 10,000 bags of gold. Uh, other translations, uh, they, they translate this as 10,000 talents. And, and what a talent was, I know you guys were all really interested in some ancient Hebrew math this morning, so you're lucky because we're doing it. Uh, the currency of the day was a denarius. And a denarius was one day's, worth of, one day's wage for work. Right? So you work a day, you get a denarius. A talent was 6,000 denarii. 6,000 days worth of work was one talent. It's about uh, 16 and a half years. And so this servant, we're going to call him servant number one. Servant number one owes 10,000 talents. Those of you guys who are good at math, that's 60 million days worth of work. So Jesus isn't just going to compare a large debt with a small debt. Jesus is is contrasting an unpayable, an unmanageable amount of debt to a payable amount of debt, a reasonable 
amount of debt. Jesus' original audience during this would have heard the story and they would have said, how the heck do you get into 60 million days worth of debt? How, do, how does the servant do that, right? And yet, Jesus continues in verse 26. He says, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me. The Greek says, be big-hearted with me, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. So, the servant promises to pay back everything. But based on the math that we just did, is that physically possible for him to do? Good. Four people are paying attention. Is it physically possible for him to pay back 60 million days worth of work? Good job, Aslan. No, this is the desperate plea of a person backed into a corner who feels like there's no other way out. So he's just beginning to make empty promises. Please, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll repay everything. The king, master, lets him go. Takes pity on him. Is the king letting him go because of his promise to repay? All right, I'm 11 o'clock, come on. Is the king letting him go because of his promise to repay? No. no. Right? The king knows that that's not possible for him to do. He's simply saying, I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to take pity. And so he cancels the debt. The natural question then becomes, what happens to this debt? What happens to 60 million days worth of work? It doesn't just disappear. This guy has this debt on these books. They're going to be out of balance. So what has to happen is the king has to eat that loss. He has to absorb that debt. And so what he has to do is he's got to close his book and set it aside. And he has to enter into this new economy with his servant. Because he can't play by the, play by the books anymore. He can't play by the old economy because everything will be unbalanced. Everything will be out of whack. So he sets the book out. He throws it out. And he enters into this new economy with his servant. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Right, so servant one, servant number one, he gets let off the hook. 60 million days worth of work. He, he gets that canceled. He gets entered into this new economy with the king. Imagine how he must have felt. He must have been just delighted. No, no, not only did he now not have to go to jail for the rest of his life, but his wife didn't have to go to the jail for the rest of her life. His kids didn't have to go to jail for the rest of their life. And he got to keep all the stuff that he owned. Because you see, back then they had debtor's prison. So if you owed a debt, you and your family and all that you owned were surrendered to your lender until uh, you were able to repay the debt. And so he has now been set free from that. This economy is working beautifully. This new economy is working beautifully in his favor. And yet, what does he do? The first thing that he does with his newfound freedom is he goes out and he finds servant number two to collect the debt that's owed to him. And back to our math real quick. Um, the NIV says he was owed 100 silver coins. Silver coins is, is also translated denarii. So he is owed 100 days worth of work, three months. Is that repayable? Yes, right? Verse 29. His fellow servant, servant number two, fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, be big-hearted with me. I will pay it back. Now, this might sound familiar to you guys. It is the exact same sentence that servant number one pleaded to his master. 
be big-hearted with me. I promise to pay it back. But the context is a little different this time around, isn't it? Because could servant, two, servant number two actually pay back his entire debt? Yeah. Yeah, right? This, this is a realistic promise that he's making. But verse 30, but he, servant number one, refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours. Why? Because you promised to repay me? No, because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should be paid back all he owed. When would that be? Never, right? 60 million days. Not going to live that long. Then Jesus concludes his story, his parable, with this warm, fuzzy sentiment. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Ooh, what? Right, so what we have here, Jesus, sorry, Peter, is asking Jesus, hey, I'm going to forgive seven times. Isn't that awesome? And, and Jesus responds with a story. We're going to use some, some visual aids here. Jesus responds with a story of a king who has his books of everything that's owed to him and everything that he owes, and he's looking through his books. And he comes across this servant, and he, he forgives the debt, even though the servant could never possibly pay it back. He says, you know what? I'm going to close the book, and I'm going to set it aside. And you're free from that debt now. Whoops. And then, Jesus tells, he continues the story, and he talks about how the servant should then go and extend that same new economy, that same mercy, that same grace to his fellow servant. But the whole story, the whole parable, hinges on the fact that the king isn't the only one with books. The servant has his own book. He is keeping track of the people he owes and the people who owe him. And when he approaches servant number two and he says, pay up what you owe me, servant number two begs for mercy and he, he says, no, we're sticking by the books. I have to balance this out. I have to make this right. It's what the book says. It's what we're going to do. And so what Jesus' point is, what does a king do with someone who insists on playing by the books? The king says, if it's by the books you want to play, and I will use the books with you. It's by the books that you want to play. I will use the books on you. Right? And, and why is this important? You see, the, the books that God has on us are huge. They're made up of all of the things that we've done to hurt people in our lives, all the things we've done that have caused God grief, all the things we've done that have hurt even ourselves. Those are the books that God carries. And the books that we carry around, they feel heavy and they feel big and they feel important to us, but they're much smaller in comparison. But here's the good news. The good news of Jesus' economy 
is that it's not about comparing the size of your book. It's not, a, it's not a case of whose book is bigger, whose book is worse. In Jesus' economy, he says, I'm throwing out the book. Now you throw out the book too. Because each of us, each of us are such good little accountants walking around with our little book saying, no, you owe me, and you owe me, and I owe you, and we're really good at keeping track of that in our own heads, right? Because you guys are anything like me, not 100% of people in my life have been nice to me, right? Some of the debts in our book, um, they're, they're maybe smaller in nature. It's the people who, who cut us off on the way to church this morning, who we like, ah, hi, you know, like that person. There's, um, there's your husband um, who doesn't take out the trash right when you ask him, often guilty. Um, there's your boss who gives the promotion that you were working so hard for to someone else who's really good at cutting corners maybe. It's your kid coming home after curfew. It's hearing that your friends were talking about you behind your back when you left that party early. These are debts that don't necessarily feel like they're the end of the world, but we slowly record them in our books and the pain that comes with them. And if we're not careful, they begin to add up and those debts accrue and accrue. And if we're not actively looking for them and forgiving them, canceling that debt, then they can wreak havoc on our relationships. But for the most part, those little ones, those little entries, they're pretty easy when we kind of talk about this stuff to say, okay, I'll get rid of that one. I'll forgive that guy who, who cut me off this morning. I'll forgive that guy who drank the last of the coffee at the office and didn't refill the pot. Right? Those, those are easy. But all of us, amidst the, the smaller things, we've got bigger entries. We've got, we've got debts in here that aren't so easy to tear out. We've got debts in our books that when we look, we say, I could never forgive that person. I, uh, I went to a concert a couple nights ago, Friday night. It was, a, it was a hardcore concert, right? So it means all the bands are like, blah, 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 and no one has any idea what's being said unless you've like, Googled the lyrics. Um, but but I, I, I went to this concert personally for one reason, and it was for this particular band that I absolutely love. And what I love about this band is the lead singer is a pastor. And, uh, and despite doing all the screaming, he uses his, his platform, his music, his stage um, to point to Jesus. You see, because most of the hardcore scene, most of the people who show up to these concerts, uh, younger people who are filled with pain and anger and bitterness and resentment, and they're showing up and they love this loud, passionate music because it speaks to their soul and the pain and the anger that they feel inside. And Tommy, the singer of this band, screamer of this band, he, he understands this and so in between songs, he constantly uses that time to point to Jesus and to give hope and, and passion and love and transformation to the people in the crowd. And so Friday night, in between two songs, he begins to tell a part of his story. And this part of his story is when he was little, he had someone in his life, someone who was supposed to love him and care for him and protect him. And instead, she exploited her position and she abused him. And that abuse, it led to a lot of pain and a lot of addiction and a lot of bitterness and anger throughout his life. And so what he did is he, he to the audience, he said, will you guys raise your hands if your own story has someone abusing their position and abusing you as a child, whether it's physically, emotionally, sexually, would, would, you, guys, would you guys raise your hand in that and we're going to pray for freedom? 
And in this crowd of youth who are all about being angry and mad and wearing this mask of toughness and invincibility, my, my rough estimate is that about 20% of the room raised their hand that night. Roughly 50 people in that room publicly declaring, yeah, I've been hurt, I've been wounded, and I'm not okay with it. We don't have to watch the news for very long to see these own kind of stories play out in our communities. Statistics say, even here, among us, one in four of us, 25% of us, have been abused as children. We were abused as children. And that's, when I, think, when I think of those kids at that concert raising their hands, when I think of the kids I see on the news, when I think of people in this room who've had to go through that, I think, God, how do we, how do we throw those out? How do we cancel those debts? I can't imagine how do you How do you let go of that kind of pain? And there's a lot of us here, maybe it's not abuse per se, but we have those same kind of heavy, weighty debts in our books that we say, look, I can rip out those others, but I can't, I can't cancel this one. I can't forgive this one. This one's too deep. It's too, it's too hurtful. This, this one can never be repaid. So, with, that, with those kinds of debts in mind, I just want to offer a few, few thoughts about forgiveness. Maybe one of these, maybe all of them can, can help you get to this place. First of all, forgiveness does not mean that what was done to you or what was done to me is okay. It doesn't excuse that behavior. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean it wasn't wrong. What happened was wrong. And it was hurtful and painful and it was not okay. Forgiveness does not mean that it's okay or that it didn't happen. Secondly, Forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation. You see, we can, we can forgive someone, we can release the debt that we're holding them to in our hearts, but it doesn't mean that we have to continue being in the same kind of relationship with them in the future. Because that's what reconciliation is. That means we're, we're, we're repairing our relationship. Sometimes you will do that, and that's great. But sometimes... You have to forgive someone, you have to let that debt go, and you have to say, in order to protect myself from this happening again, I'm limiting our relationship from here on out. We're not going to have the same kind of relationship going forward because I can't subject myself to that kind of ongoing pain. Third, forgiveness is not for the other person. It's for you. It's for me. It's for us. Sometimes forgiveness is for the other person. That, that's when reconciliation happens. But for a lot of you, the person that you most need to forgive, they're not alive any longer. For some of you, the person that you need to forgive, you don't have a relationship with them anymore. For some of you, maybe you're in my boat with the guy in junior high. The person that you need to forgive, they don't even remember having done anything wrong. They, don't, they can't even acknowledge the fact that they owe you a debt. And so it would be weird to say, hey, I forgive you. They're like, for what, Right? So, so forgiveness is not always for the other people. It's always for us. And I also want to add this. Uh, as I was kind of walking through this message with my wife, she, she put this out there, and I, I love it because I would have totally glazed over this. Sometimes, for some of you, the biggest debt that you have in your book is yourself. For some of you guys, the, 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 you, you can forgive other people, 
you can't forgive yourself. So you are walking around holding yourself in this debtor's prison inside your heart. The fact is, God's got that book on you and he's already thrown it out. Before you could do anything, before you could even ask for him to throw it out, he threw out that book. He's already canceled that debt that you're holding against yourself. So here's what, here's what I want to do as, as a community. Um, the band's going to come up in a couple minutes and, and play some songs, but if you flip your outline over, on the back side, there's two blank sections. The first, uh, the first side says our books. And I, what I want us all to do there is write down the names of the people who have hurt you. Who owes you an emotional debt, big or small? Now, real quick, before we proceed, this is a repeat after me moment. Ready? All right. I will, I will. not look, not look. At, my at my neighbor's paper. Good. You are all bound in covenant to God now, um, so don't lie. Um, but no, for real, whether it is a big debt, it's one of those ones that you're not sure you can ever forgive that person, or it's one of the smaller ones like my acne story. Uh, it, we're, it's not a comparison game, but we are just going to be people who take inventory. Who are the people who owe us? Write that down in the Our Books section. And I realize for some of you guys, you are here this morning and you're sitting next to the person who owes you the biggest debt in that book. I get that. And so for you, maybe you have to write in a secret code. Maybe it's safest for you to take inventory later on in, in, in private, and that's, that's okay. But write something down, big or small. Take inventory. What do people owe you? And some of you guys, you're going to refuse to write anything down because there's always those people in every crowd. Um, it's okay. Jesus still loves you. Uh, maybe just write denial in the corner. Uh, that'll be totally okay. Um, but the second half of the page says God's books. And here's where I want us to write down what are the, what are the things in the book that God's thrown out on us? Who are the people that we've hurt? What are the things that we've done that have caused pain to others, to ourselves, to God, that God has said, no, I throw that out? And here's why I want us to do that. It's not, it's not a shame game. It's not a guilt trip. The reality is, is we're so good at carrying around our books we're, we're, we're happy to live in the glory of having God thrown out our book, but we're not willing to do the same. But what, what makes it possible to do the same is when we remind ourselves of what God has thrown out and when we are people filled with gratitude for having that book thrown out. Because for most of us, we don't have it within us to cancel those debts on our own. We can't do that on our own. But because God has forgiven us, because he's thrown out our book, we are then empowered to throw out that book. But it starts with saying, what's God forgiven me from? What's he canceled of mine? What's he released me from? So write that down now. I'm going to pray in a second. Continue to write while I pray. Write while the band sings, while you sing. But here's, here's the thing, guys. Let's, let's, not be, let's not be that first servant. Let's not be people who say, yep, God's economy is for me, but no one else gets it. Let us be people 
so filled with gratitude for God throwing out our books that we can't help but throw out the books that people owe us. Again, we're not saying it's okay. We're not saying it doesn't hurt. But we're saying, I've been freed, and so I set you free. Bow your heads with me. Jesus, thank you for throwing out our book. Thank you for uh, looking at the debt that we've accrued throughout our life and saying, I'm not holding that against you. You would never be able to repay that, and I don't expect you to. I'm throwing that book out. God, help us in the next few minutes as we write down the people in our own books and, and the entries we have in your books. God, fill us with gratitude. As we put our prayers to music, God, and we sing out to you, just overwhelm us with a sense of gratitude for the debt that we have been freed from, God, and so that we would be encouraged to go out into our lives, into our families, our neighborhoods, our jobs, and we would do the same for the people who owe us. Not because it's okay, not because it didn't hurt, not because it didn't happen, God, but because it did hurt and it did happen and it was not okay, but because you freed us and so now you're saying, go and free them. Love you, God. thousand times I failed, still your mercy remains. Should I stumble again, still I'm caught in your grace. A thousand times I failed, still your mercy remains. Should I stumble again, still I'm caught in your grace. Everlasting. Your light will shine when all else fades, never ending. Your glory goes beyond all fame. Will above all else my prayer Purpose remains 